the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Chief Warrant Officer Bill Darling, MMMCD, former Regimental Sergeant Major of the 48th Highlanders of Canada, former Brigade Sergeant Major of 32 Canadian Brigade Group, former Reserve Sergeant Major of Land Force Central Area. Being in the stands for the presentation of new colors in 1991 while they're trooping the old colors and we're waiting to go on with the new colors and my pager goes off. And I look at the pager and then the rest of the color party looks at me and they said, what does it say? And I said, the contractions are 20 minutes apart. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Now in the first part of the episode with Chief Warrant Officer Bill Darling, I did make a mention that he has the gift of gab and that he likes to talk. Well, it pushed me over my upload limit, even though I had that resolved a couple of episodes ago and I haven't had an issue with upload limits for quite some time. That's what happened. So I have to do a two-parter again. And it's been a long time since I've had to do a two-parter. But nevertheless, I still think it's well worth my effort to produce a two-part episode for this guest. And I hope that you enjoy the second part of the interview with Chief Warrant Officer Bill Darling. Well, speaking about people, who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? And I know that the 48 Highlanders of Canada are full of memorable characters. Oh, absolutely. I'll start with the influences, right. the positive influences that I had. When I joined and remustered into the 48th, I did a summer course, even though I was a bombardier at the time. They said to me in the recruiting office that I could wait until the fall and I could do a part-time PQ-1 infantryman course through the fall and into the winter, or they had vacancies on their summer course program. But what it meant was is I would have to take my rank down and I could go and take the course, and I would do recruit and basic all over again. Oh, my God. <laughs> I would do my basic infantry course. But I would get it done, so in September, because we could do it all in one summer back then. Yeah, absolutely. So that in September, I would go into the rifle company. So that's what I did. And back then, we got paid in cash. So you, we would all line up, and the military police would be <laughs> standing there with their submachine guns, and they would have the piles of five and ten and twenty dollar bills and they would peel them all off and I was always getting paid more than the other guy. Yeah. And I knew it was because I was a corporal, even though I wasn't wearing the rank. They, on the other hand, are being paid as private recruits and private basic and that kind of thing. What was it, like $19 a day or something? When I joined in 79, I think it was seventeen twenty-five a day. <laughs> and then when you went from private recruit to private basic, I think you went to seventeen seventy-five. And I remember thinking, boy, I've got the world by the short and curly now. <laughs> We're making big money now. So, yeah, I was getting paid more, and I would, I'm would i lying to them saying, oh, it's because they're screwing up on my income tax and all that. They're not taking enough off. And of course, when I went to get my Balmoral, when I was graduating as a qualified infantier, they put my Balmoral on, and at the time, we wore our rank on slip-ons on our epaulets on our shoulders. Right. They changed my rank and put corporals up. Everybody else, they didn't get their slip-ons changed because they didn't have private stripes. So I come marching back in and I fall in and all of a sudden I'm standing there as a corporal. 
So they kind of, oh, what's going on? So I had to explain to them that I actually came from an artillery unit and that kind of stuff. From there, it was into the rifle company, Charlie Company. And Greg Young, who's now a brigadier general, yes. he was a captain at the time, and he'd just CFR'd. And, uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Greg came up through the ranks, was an MWO, and then CFR'd the captain, and then worked his way up through the officer ranks, obviously to become the CO and then brigade commander and area commander. Yeah. I was quite fortunate that the clique that I started to hang around with in the rifle company, and just like the clique back in high school where I hung around with guys that were maybe a little on the lazy side, (laughs) I kind of got really lucky and I was hanging out in a clique where the guys that I was with took it seriously. And it was soldiers like Ron Alkema, Tom Scott, Bud Gilly, Steve Meredith, Jim Jenkins. They took what we were doing seriously. And that started to rub off on you. And you saw other soldiers that would kind of clown around. And in a lot of ways, the reserves back then were viewed as, I hesitate to use the term Boy Scouts with rifles, but in some ways, probably weren't far off that. Yeah. I remember going to range weekends where the first thing that went on the bus to go up the Borden was the case of beer. <laughs> Yeah. Not the ammunition, not the weapons, not anybody's rucksack. It was the case of beer. That kind of stuff would never happen today. So I was fortunate that I hung around with guys that took it seriously. And I think that started to rub off on me. That I remember as a young troop going on parade, wearing service dress, and I probably hadn't put as much effort into polishing my Oxfords as maybe I should have. And I made some comment to my sergeant. It was, I think it was Jim Jenkins. And he said, well, how come you haven't polished those Oxfords a little bit more? And I flipped off with some comment about, oh, I'm a field soldier, not a parade square soldier. Uh-oh. <laughs> and he said, then you're not a real soldier because a real soldier does all of it. That was a real wake-up call to sort of say, hmm, okay, got it. Yeah, real soldiers, doesn't matter what tasking is or where it is, whether it's in the field or on the parade square, you give it your best shot. Yeah, definitely. And I've always tried to do that since then, that when I go and look in the mirror, I like to make sure that the guy looking back says, you did everything you could. Mm -hmm. Whether you were successful or not, you did everything that you could. And I think that's stood me fairly well over the years. I've been very fortunate that when I've interacted with soldiers from other units, and to speak to your current regiment, the Grand Simcoe Foresters, Master Corporal Frank Vanderat, Clayton Donahue, Perry Rittershofer, who I understand is your DCO, that's to correct. become your CO, Mike Cottenden, who unfortunately was killed a couple of years ago. That's right. Yeah, some very positive influences from soldiers from other units. Certainly, you had mentioned that uh, Glenn Moore had done one of these episodes for you. Glenn is somebody that I was on course with. I shudder to think what year that was. <laughs> I think 1986, 87, down right. in shot. I still remember being down there with Glenn. Good guy, had some fun, but by the same token, we worked hard. Yeah. It was a good course. Zoltan Novak from the Toronto Scottish Regiment. Well, quick surprise on the Novak family. His young son is now a 48th Highlander. Go figure that out. So Really? I'll have to go look him up. I'll have to go. I'll have to see if Zoltan's around and chat with him. Yeah, certainly. Bring back some old memories there. So I think I was quite fortunate that I got in with 
the right kind of influence. Now, in terms of the characters that you run into, and every regiment has their character. Certainly. And most regiments have more than one. I'm reminded of a series of books that were written by a British author by the name of George MacDonald Fraser. And Mr. Fraser wrote the Flashman series of books. And Flashman was an English gentleman, probably the second son of the Duke of whatever, I can't quite remember, who was not going to inherit the family title, but went into the army. And he was a bit of a cad. He was lazy. He was always in trouble. And Mr. McDonald wrote this series of books. And he's most known for the Flashman series of books. But he also wrote three books about his service in the British Army. And he served as a corporal in Burma during the Second War. And afterwards, while he was waiting to be demobbed, he was a lieutenant in the Gordon Highlanders serving in Libya. And he talks about one particular soldier, Private McCausland, the dirtiest soldier in the British Army. <laughs> and he goes on to explain that McCausland is actually a composition of many individuals. And if I had to come up with a McCausland, and I think that I can, I could come up with some pretty interesting stories. <laughs> stories along the lines of a young troop who was goofing off in the defensive position. And I walked up and caught him goofing off for about the fourth or fifth time. And I was a platoon sergeant at the time. And I started yelling at the good Private McCausland. And I said, you get in that bunker and you start digging. And you don't stop digging till I come back. <laughs> and I was mad and he knew I was mad because he'd been goofing off half the morning. And I think probably about four or five in the afternoon, I said to somebody, hey, have you seen McCausland? Somebody said, well, I think he's over. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> I'd gotten hung up with the sergeant major and the CQ, and I was talking to my platoon commander, and I was checking on the other sections. And I go back over, and there is the good Private McCausland stripped down to the waist, sweat pouring off the poor kid. He has this bunker that had to be about 20 feet by 20 feet by about 10 feet deep with earth and berm all over the place. And I looked in and I, I said, good God, man, why didn't you stop? You knew how big we had to dig this thing. Why didn't you stop? <laughs> and he said, you, you told me to keep going till you got back. Right. And I knew you were mad. So another time, McCausland got himself charged as soldiers are wont to do upon occasion. And as part of the investigation, he was interviewed by the military police. And he had, in course of an evening of drinking in the junior ranks mess, had gotten into a disagreement with a soldier from another unit. And he followed that soldier into the washroom. And while this soldier was busy doing his business at the urinal, <laughs> McCausland walked up behind him and said, hey, aren't you bloggins? from the Queen's own. And Bloggins says, yeah, yeah, that's me. And the next thing you know, McCausland proceeds to get violent on him, resulting in Bloggins getting a black eye and a fat lip and a loose tooth. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so Bloggins is into the Queen's own the following week and says, I need to fill out a CF-98 because I got a loose tooth. And they said, well, how did that happen? And he said, I was upstairs in the junior ranks mess. And they said, okay, well, how do you get a loose tooth in the junior ranks mess? And out comes the story about McCausland something up. So the Queen's own phoned the military police because McCausland by this point has actually managed to get some rank. He's a master corporal. 
So the military police come down and interview the good Master Corporal McCausland about why did he decide it was a good idea to get violent on private bloggins from the Queen's own. And there was a long story that is far too... What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> far. This is a family show, <laughs> so we'll just leave it like that. There was a long preamble about why the good Master Corporal McCausland felt he was aggrieved. So I guess the military police decided that the next course of action would be to interview McCausland to get his side of the story. And I think at some point during the interview, the MP suggested that maybe if McCausland apologized to Bloggins for thumping him, that this might go away. McCausland made a statement. The military police wrote it down. During the trial, my company commander, knowing full well what was in the statement, requested that I, as the company sergeant major, read this statement into evidence. I get to the part where McCausland states quite clearly and graphically that he would rather have his hair lit on fire with gasoline <laughs> and have the MPs try and put it out with a rake before he apologizes to that son of a bitch. <laughs> So there's certainly a long litany and list of memorable characters, right. good and bad, and not just in the 48th. I think every regiment probably worldwide yeah. has their McCausland. <laughs> or as some of these mimes that you see these days, particularly coming out of the States, Carl seems to be quite popular with stepping in it on a regular basis. Right. So I think every unit has those. So all the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Then. <laughs> all of the names have been changed to protect the guilty and the innocent. So, Bill, we've come to the last question. What was the greatest challenge you've had to overcome in your time? I think it's a challenge that almost every reserve soldier at some point has to face, and that's time management. Hmm, definitely. <laughs> the balance between family. And your regiment can, in a way, become your family. I mean, I have made lifelong friends that I've known for 35 years that I've laughed with, cried with, gotten drunk with, the whole gamut. So that includes that part of family. It's your friend. When you finally meet that somebody special and decide that you want to tie the knot, and then the next thing you know, along come a passel of three little ones, and I wouldn't trade them for the world. Hmm. You start a civilian career and finding the time to balance all of that out. Dealing with the guilt of missing birthday, of anniversaries where you're in the field or on course. Being in the stands for the presentation of new colors in 1991 while they're trooping the old colors and we're waiting to go on with the new colors and my pager goes off. Mm -hmm. And I look at the pager, and then the rest of the color party looks at me, and they said, what does it say? And I said, oh, my God, <laughs> the contractions are 20 minutes apart. <laughs> to her credit, she stayed in the stands. She watched the entire parade. <laughs> After the parade was over, things got a little exciting. Yep. My second daughter didn't actually arrive just after the parade. It turned out to be a bit of a false alarm. Oh, okay. Because we had talked about it, and we said, if you go into labor up to two hours before the parade, I can get somebody to cover off for me. Anything two hours in the end, I'm committed to this parade. Right. And I've got a very key position on the parade. You look back on that now, and you kind of go, am I ever glad? 
that that pager message didn't say the contractions are five minutes apart or two minutes apart because I would have been faced with what should have been an easy decision, (laughs) which is here's my rifle, here's the color, this is what you do. On this word of command, you dip the color and they're going to pull the case off and (laughs) have fun, guys, i got to go to the hospital. But at the time, you have this sense of professionalism that says, I'm here to do a job. And it's trying to manage that time. When your kids get older and they start in on other activity, hockey, dance, girl guides, boy scouts, the cub scouts, beavers, and you have this military training that you have picked up over the years and a lot of experience and you realize that I can maybe help out here. So the next thing you know, you're coaching three hockey teams, <laughs> you're a Boy Scout leader and you're about to become the regimental sergeant major of a reserve unit and you're a middle management guy with your company and it's trying to balance all of the time commitment. And I think going forward, one of the things that rattles around in my head that I, it doesn't keep me awake at night, but I do kind of worry about it a little bit. Having come out of the Army training system is how much time we actually spend training. And if I was Private Darling today, walking onto the Armory floor, would I 35 years from now be Chief Warrant Officer Darling? Mm -hmm. And I'm really not sure that I would because of the time commitments that are required for all of the courses that we have to take. Now, it's there for some very, very good reasons. We learned some very painful lessons on operations in the Balkans, in Afghanistan. We're probably learning some lessons right now in places like Iraq, and that information will start to filter back and be incorporated into our training. I think we have some of the best training in the world that produces some of the best soldiers in the world. I would stack a Canadian soldier up against a soldier from any other country in the world. And now I'm not talking about Delta Force and the SAS and JTF2. I'm talking about the normal on the armory floor soldier. I would stack a Canadian soldier up against a soldier from any other country in the world. I've had the privilege of working with some of those soldiers. And I think we stack up pretty damn well. But at the same time, there's this little thought that rattles around in the back of your head that says, would Private Darling today be able to make it to Chief Warrant Officer? And I'm not sure that I would. That's not a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, your former command team partner, Brigadier General Chapman, was able to communicate that time management very effectively when he charted it out and put all the military commitments on one side of the chart and all the life commitments, like getting into a new job, maybe starting an entry position where you involve shift work. Maybe you're taking on additional courses and you're upgrading your education. Maybe you have a young family, so you're starting a young family. And then he parallels that with the NCM and officer development plans that we have set where maybe you go on a deployment. Well, are you going to go to deployment when you're starting a young family? Well, maybe not, but maybe when they're five, eight years old, they're old enough that you can go on that deployment. So if the reserve employer is capable of 
meeting that timeline, that demand, and matching the demands on the individual with the demands that are going on with their personal life, we can see that success in the long run. Whereas when we want results now and we want results instantly, we want the person to commit to everything all the time, that's where we end up with the problems. And I really think that Brigadier General Chapman put it very clearly to members of at least the 4th Canadian Division when he put forward that model and proposed that scheme of matching those demands. I know the exact chart you're talking about, Mike, because I was involved with General Chapman and several others in part of the group that sort of put that together. And it's things like, exactly like you said, you're in an entry-level position, but you only get two or three weeks vacation a year. Yeah. And do I say to Mama, sorry, we're not going to the cottage this summer for a week or two because... I've got to go on course or I've got to go on Milcon or Stalwart Guardian or whatever the name of the summer concentration exercise is. Yeah, managing that time gets brutally difficult. If you're lucky and you've got an employer, and I'm lucky that my employer is U.S.-based, so as soon as I say Army Reservist, I can almost carte blanche get the time off that I need. Right. So I'm very lucky that way, but I'm one of the very few that has that. So. I'm not stressed where if I need two weeks or three weeks to go on an exercise and I need two or three weeks or six weeks to go on a course, so long as I communicate that well in advance, I'm probably okay to be able to do some of that kind of stuff. But I'm one of the very lucky few that's in that position. If you're the number four guy (laughs) in a company that only has five employees or six employees, to cut a guy loose for two weeks can be burdensome enough. Absolutely. Never mind six months or longer. When you start getting into deployments to places like Afghanistan and the workup training being with the deployment a year long, right? a lot of companies can't take that hit. Yeah. So it gets very, very difficult. And then when you layer on all the coursing that we have to take, yeah, it kind of rattles around in your head to say, I wonder if we've got it right. Hmm. We've got some good training. Like I said, you stack up a Canadian soldier against any other soldier in the world, and we match up pretty damn well. Yeah, you kind of wonder about, is it sustainable? Hmm. Right. So now bigger brains than mine, I'm sure, will figure that piece out. <laughs> Certainly. So when we talk about family, I'd mentioned part of your family is your regiment and how you interact with the soldiers, the NCOs, and the officers. Continuing Sergeants Association, which is the old sweats that had done the business before we did. Right. The old Comrades Association, even the Officers Association, the Ladies Auxiliary. In the 48th, they have a chapter of the International Order of the Daughters of the Empire. So there's many facets to the regimental family. But I also think that I need to touch on my own family. And I'm sure that it's the same for every soldier out there, yourself included. When you first joined, you've got parents, you've got brothers and sisters, and you're off doing this thing called the Army Reserve, and it has an impact on their lives. As your career develops, both on the military and on the personal side, you get a little bit older, and lo and behold, you meet that special person in your life, and you decide you're going to start a relationship with that person In my case, it blossomed into marriage and three wonderful children, two daughters and a son. At the time, my wife, my now ex-wife, unfortunately, but my wife, Elaine, she was a civilian. Now, she had come from a family in the United Kingdom that had experience with the military over there, in particular, the Territorial Army, which is what we would call the Army Reserve. So she was somewhat familiar with what a reservist was. 
but she was certainly very understanding and very patient in terms of that time management piece that said, this year, we can go on a family vacation. <laughs> but next year, I really need to go on this course right. if I want to advance my career. I really need to go on this exercise if I want to advance my career. And she was a wonderful mother to my children when I wasn't necessarily there because I was away on courses and exercises. And I missed birthdays and I missed anniversaries. And there's part of me that probably feels a little guilty about that even today right. that it happened. A very interesting dynamic, just as a slight sidebar, when our youngest was four, my son, Elaine decided that she wanted to pursue a career in the military and she joined the reserves. She became a member of 32 Service Battalion as a mobile support equipment operator. Yep. And she's done very well for herself. She's now component transferred into the regular force. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, she's a sergeant with one service battalion out in Edmonton <laughs> and doing very well. And I remember when she deployed overseas and I got a little bit of a taste of being the one that's at home. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she's overseas and it was Bosnia-Herzegovina in 2003 and 2004 when she was overseas doing the business that the people of Canada had asked us to do over in Bosnia. Very interesting having a civilian career, trying to manage a part-time Army Reserve career and trying to get three wonderful children to school, to hockey practices, to hockey games, to various other activities. And to give credit to Elaine, I'm amazed that she did it for as many years as she did for me. Right. I owe a huge thank you to my children. My oldest, Colleen, my youngest daughter, Samantha, and my youngest of all, my son, William. Will, he'll take my head off if he hears <laughs> me call him William. Will, I owe them a huge thank you. I don't think I could have been as successful in my career without their support and their backing all the way through. And that includes support for their mother as well and what she did. So a huge thank you to my kids for that. But that all ties into individual soldiers today and how they manage their time. Right. And as I said, it doesn't necessarily keep me awake at night. But it is something that does rattle around in your head and you kind of wonder, would I really have been as successful as I have been, certainly without their support, and if we don't look at our training system, yeah. if we don't look at how much and what we expect. And as I said, bigger brains than mine will figure out what we might have to cut or what we need to add or what we need to shorten or what we need to lengthen. Mm -hmm. Well, there's an interesting expression, and it's not isolated to the Army Reserve. I mean, it's pretty open to all aspects of the Canadian forces. But when a soldier chooses to deploy, and even a regular force soldier, sailor, they still have a measure of choice. I mean, they can choose to release at any time. When a soldier or sailor or aviator chooses to deploy, they make that decision with the understanding that that decision affects them and their family. But the family doesn't really get that decision. They can influence that decision. Right. But when we choose to deploy it and the family is kind of drafted into that deployment along with us. I think drafted is an excellent word, because <laughs> they are. And you yourself have been deployed. Yeah. And I was in Bosnia in 2005. I know you were in Sierra Leone 2011. You knew what kind of quote unquote fun you were getting into while you were over there. <laughs> You knew when you were in the jungles or the grasslands of Sierra Leone, you know how much danger there was around you. You knew how much of a threat and a risk there was to you at any sort of given moment. 
it was the same thing when I was in Bosnia. When you were out in the forests and driving up and down the mountains and that kind of thing, you had a pretty good handle on what was going on around you. Now, that doesn't mean to say there aren't surprises. Right. Because there certainly are. But you're aware of your surroundings. The folks back home, all they know is that you're in a quote-unquote war zone. And they see stuff and they hear stuff on the radio and on the television and news reports. And I'm sure when you were in Sierra Leone, people had visions of it being like Afghanistan. Right. Except instead of being arid and mountains, it was jungle. So you know what kind of quote-unquote fun you're having. The folks back home don't. Right. And I remember getting a phone call when Elaine was deployed. It was about 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, I'm a chief warrant officer at this point. I know how the casualty reporting system works. They don't phone. Right. They come to your door. They knock on your door. And it's an officer, usually a colonel, maybe a major. It's a padre. They knock on your door and they say, we've got something to tell you. So I know this. My phone rings at 4 o'clock in the morning and wakes me up. And I go into a spin thinking, oh, this is it. This is it. As I'm fumbling around for the phone, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, is she alive or dead? Right. How am I going to tell the kid? How am I going to raise the kids? The kids, the kids are going to have to put up with me by myself for the next <laughs> however many years. I'm feeling sorry for the kids now. But it's that idea that you're at home, you don't know what they're doing. It's a very interesting perspective. And I cannot tip my hat enough as a salute to every single family that is backed up and supported a soldier, sailor, or airman, or airwoman that's deployed overseas. Right. That support is just phenomenal. So, Bill, we've come to the end of the four questions. What are you working on now? What's coming up for you? I have left CAD-TC unofficially. <laughs> I still officially, it's kind of funny because I still belong to them because I'm in the process of commissioning from the ranks and my paperwork for my promotion to captain is in with the hire and my transfer can't go through from CAD-TC to the 48th Highlanders as a chief warrant officer. No, right. Because chief warrant officer, of course, is a controlled rank. So yeah. get the promotion out of the way and then it's back on the ground with the 48th. So through discussions with the chain of command at CAD-TC and with the 48th, I have been parading with the 48th. I am the company 2IC of administration company, which is a bit of an eye-opener. <laughs> it's been a long time since I hung around inside quartermaster stores, but I'm getting used to it again. It was a lot of fun last weekend being up in Borden for a range shoot. Right. We got absolutely rained on. It poured rain in the middle of one of the relays. I was lying down next to a young soldier who needed a little bit of coaching because he was jerking the trigger and didn't have his breathing quite right. And he was kind of all over the map. So we sort of had to settle him down and that kind of thing. And I don't think I stopped smiling for about three days. <laughs> it was great. It is great being back on the armory floor, being with soldiers, I enjoyed what I did at CAD-TC. I enjoyed what I did with LFCA at the time, now 4DIV. I enjoyed what I did there. I am loving being back on the armory floor with soldiers. Excellent. So that's where I'm at, waiting for my, uh, waiting for my three pips to come through. Oh, enjoy affixing those to your DUs. That's a pleasure. <laughs> I hear that's a real treat. Yeah. So... That's all good. I'm looking forward to it. And my kind of take on it is I've had people say to me, 
why would you want to come back as a captain? You were the regimental sergeant major. You were a brigade sergeant major. You were the four div reserve sergeant major, and you were the Army Training Authority reserve sergeant major. Why would you want to come back to be a captain? And it ties back into my family history in the 48th. Right. I was the first fourth generation 48th Highlander, and the first three generations all drank at the south end of the building, and I drank at the north end of the building. Right. So if I was to badmouth officers, and I know some NCOs do, if I was to badmouth officers, I'm badmouthing my family history. And that just doesn't sit right with me. No, absolutely not. And in today's day and age of working in command teams and that we work as a team, if you've got an officer that has a couple of problems and issues, it behooves you to work with him instead of working against him because it's all about care of our soldiers. Yeah, definitely. And it's about the soldier on the armory floor. It's not about what rank you are or any of that kind of good stuff. It's about the soldier on the armory floor. And if you can't see past that, then it might be time to hang it up and call it a day. Definitely. I don't think I'm quite there yet. I still think I have something to contribute besides crusty old war stories up in the officer's mess. I think I have something to give back to the soldier on the armory floor. So that's what I'm hoping I'm going to do, Mike. And the other thing that young NCMs need to realize is when you're a master corporal and you see that young second lieutenant or officer cadet that's tripping over his shoelaces and he's got his name tag on upside down, eventually that guy's going to become a platoon commander and the likelihood of you being paired up with him when you become a sergeant or warrant officer is pretty good. And then you might end up being the CSM and the company commander at the same time and moving on. And I've given that a nickname. I call it the command team echo. And I experienced that with Dwayne Hobbs throughout my career. Oh, absolutely. But you don't build that relationship with that young second lieutenant when you're a young junior NCO. It can make a very long and difficult career for you as you move and progress. Absolutely. And let's take it one step further. Let's think beyond being a reservist on the armory floor where going to the field is Meaford for a weekend or Petawawa for a week. Let's take it one step further and you have been picked up to go on roto and so is that young lieutenant. And that young lieutenant is now in command of a platoon in Afghanistan. And you have chosen that when he had his name tag on upside down, as you say, and didn't have his bootlaces quite tied up right, instead of helping him out and showing them the errors of his ways and helping him to become a better soldier and a better leader, if you chose to ridicule him, now all of a sudden he's your platoon commander in operations, in a theater of war, that's a pretty scary thought. Yeah, definitely. So it behooves all of us to make sure that we are the best that we can be and that we can make the people around us better as well. Certainly. So there you go. Well, Bill, I'd like you to give you an opportunity to summarize your episode. I think that I can summarize my 35 years in this episode. Not that this episode's been 35 <laughs> years, but I'm summarizing 35 years. It's been fun. It's been challenging. It's been rewarding, extremely rewarding. It has helped me in ways that I never dreamed possible. I tell young master corporals and sergeants and even young lieutenants, some of the best training to help you become a father is your army training. Yeah. How to deal with your kids. Now, 
I never made my kids march up and down. <laughs> I didn't. But you learn how you learn how to deal with others. In particular, if you have ever taught on a recruit course where you turn a civilian into a soldier, and how do you go about that? How do you teach somebody to march? How do you go about doing that? And it's all about turning an infant into a child, into an adolescent, into an adult. Right. And I look at my kids, and I think I did a pretty good job of that. The other thing that helps you in the military world is becoming a father. Because <laughs> if you can deal with a two-year-old, you can deal with most corporals. Not that I'm saying corporals are two-year-olds, <laughs> but tying back to those memorable characters and Private McCausland, some of them are. It's been a tremendous experience. It's not one that I would recommend for everybody. Being a soldier isn't for everybody, but I wouldn't trade it for the world, for me personally. I've had a great time doing it. And I know that we've had good days and bad days. We've certainly had some dark days. Mm -hmm. We've certainly had some very enlightening days. But overall, I would take the whole package all over again and I would do it all over again. Right. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> well, it's been a fun journey to share with you on my portion of your 35 years. And I want to thank you very much for, first of all, your mentorship and your guidance. As I was a rookie regimental sergeant major and a rookie brigade sergeant major, I always knew that I could call you for a piece of advice or a little bit of guidance or even just to air a quick frustration over something that didn't quite go the way that I wanted it to. And I also want to thank you for being my guest on episode 48, which is the first numerically significant episode I've been able to pull off. Well, in an ironic twist of fate, you almost didn't have a 48th Highlander <laughs> for your 48th episode. You could have ended up with a gunner. Yeah. But uh, Mike, <laughs> right. it's certainly been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure to have known you over the years. And as I say, anytime you interact with people, you take something away. Good, bad, ugly, whatever you take something away. I have certainly taken things away from you over the course of your career. It's been my pleasure to have served with you. I'm glad that I was able to offer some mentorship along the way. I want to thank you, you personally, for doing this, for hosting these podcasts, for bringing the history, the living, breathing, spoken history of individual soldiers to light. We can sit down and in years to come, we will be able to read the regimental history of the 48th Highlanders, but it won't have some of the anecdotes about Private McCausland. Right. Well, as I said before, Mike, I mean, any way to get the living history as opposed to the written word, we all have our regimental histories. And I've read through some of the 48th history in the two main volumes called Delius. Yeah. Volume one and volume two. And there are places where, boy, is it ever dry. <laughs> yeah. I really didn't think Vimy Ridge was that boring a battle. <laughs> yeah. But they're trying to portray what a regiment accomplished on a particular battle. It gets very difficult to get into specific names and little section skirmishes and battles that are fought as part of the history of what happened. Yeah. Maybe somebody notable if they happened to win a Distinguished Conduct Medal or a Military Cross or a Military Medal or a DCO or a DSO, something like that, then yeah. maybe. But otherwise, it's pretty broad brush. So this way, you're getting individual stories, individual history, yeah. which is important. That's part of who and what we are. Yeah. And and we'll be able to read about the dry 
history of Afghanistan and the Balkans. But there's so much more to that history, and that's the individual that's the living, breathing part of that history, and you're helping to keep that alive and bring that out to people. So thank you very much for what you're doing. It's my pleasure. Bill, I can't wait to have a beer with you in the officer's mess of the 48 Islanders at your invitation. I know that every time I've been hosted there, I've been treated very well. However, the next time I'm in that room, I know it'll be the first time as an officer, and it will be yours as well if I become your guest one night. Absolutely, and I understand that the officer's mess has a chit system. <laughs> I probably wasn't supposed to divulge that, but I understand they have a chit system, so it would be my pleasure, Mike, to buy you a drink or two. I'd love to sit down with you and chat again. Excellent. Take care. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.